Hello, Nick. Hello, Paul. So that, that album, of course, is going to be uh, Expecting to Fly by the Blue Tones. Yes. Lovely. Uh, which I went out on a limb with this week on Twitter and, mm. and uh, declared unabashedly, unashamedly, Bravely. unreservedly, Bravely, Bravely, I would say, yes. that it was uh, not just a great debut album, but was in fact the greatest debut album by any British band ever, which uh, seemed, seemed to upset some people. Uh, other people <laughs> other people took it as a bit of a challenge, yeah. and uh, some people did actually agree. Yeah, I, uh, as you, you read in our exchange, I, I put it in as a strong fourth but i have to say since i've been kind of going through it for this very reason for us to talk about it tonight it's gone up i don't quite know where to put it but uh yeah i I think i wouldn't go as far as to completely agree with you but it's definitely moved up amongst the top two i would imagine I was accused a, a couple of months ago by somebody on Twitter, and I say accused, I, I think there is a strong argument uh, to support the accusation, by the way, uh, okay. of, of being guilty of uh, hyperbole. And that is that is definitely true. Uh, but I'm, I'm, again, unashamed and unreserved about that. I think pop music should make you uh, hyperbolic. I think it should make you make grandiose statements. It, it should push particular buttons inside of your psyche and make you go out on a limb so yeah i mean there is an argument it's merely one of the great uh, british debut albums but i think i put forward a pretty compelling case for why it is the i wonder if it might be worthwhile starting pre blue tones pre Britpop, pre any of that and go all the way back to 1968 because i think there is something quite interesting about where the album that takes its title from, which of course is that Buffalo Springfield song, of Expecting course. to Fly, which I yeah. think came from their second album. And it's written by Neil Young, of course, Expecting to Fly, and it's a very beautiful song. And I was looking over the lyrics to that, and the influence is very, very clear. It is also a, a very romantic song. It's a very beautiful song. There, there are slight moments of pathos in there and comedy. And I, I don't think that it was a, just an attempt to be... I mean, I don't I don't think anybody in the Blue Tones was interested in trying to be cool, but I don't think they were just trying to drop the name of, you know, an unexpected influence. I think genuinely, particularly in the case of Mark Morris, that there is a real love affair for Buffalo Springfield. In fact, of course, he, he covered uh, Rock and Roll Woman, I think it was. I think you're right. Is that right, the name yeah. of the song? Yeah, on yeah, his, yeah. On his uh, covers album. Yeah, Rock and Roll Woman. So, you know... Th- the interesting thing for me about that is is that the only thing I knew about Buffalo Springfield for a very long time was for what it's worth, which my, my dad introduced me to. You know, they would have probably turned up on his radar just as Maud was beginning to morph into something a little bit trippier and a little bit more psychedelic. And he absolutely loved Buffalo Springfield. But that for a long time was the only thing that I was aware of. But when you, as I say, when you look at the lyrics to that particular song, you know, it's there. There's that lovely line about um, stumbling to the ground so hard to laugh as I fumbled and I think it finishes off with and reached for the love I found knowing it was gone I mean that, yeah. that could come straight off of the Blue Tones album it's very true there's there's definite the kind of the rhyme and the rhythms of the the lyrics and the the emotions are very very similar so I wouldn't go I wouldn't say it's a stretch to say that for me I don't know, I'm Buffalo Springfielder 
something which I came to quite late as well. So um, I can see similarities for sure, but I I don't know them well enough to to go into it and uh, make direct uh, comparisons. No, I think I'm the same. I think the the only thing that I would be comfortable in saying really is is that the blue tones, when you go back and like you, when you go back and revisit that album after a little bit mm. of a gap and you think about it more carefully, you can see that unlike so many of their peers, they were not drawing on the same narrow pool of influences. It wasn't the Jam, it wasn't the Smiths, it wasn't the Kinks, and it wasn't Madness, right? There, there is something a little bit more outward looking when you listen to that album. It sounds, yeah. it sounds British, it sounds English, but equally, you do hear that kind of folk rock little tinges of country in there west coast 60s americana the birds buffalo springfield yeah. it's all in there so i just thought it was interesting you know i, I, I hadn't really thought about the title of the song in, in, until i wrote my my piece on expecting to fly for the site uh, yeah. and then went back and started listening to that buffalo springfield song and there are definitely uh, resonances there yeah and i think um as we usually do we, we'll probably get into our own particular stories as to where we we first came into contact with either the album or the band and uh for me i won't go into that part of it right now we'll get to that later i'm sure but one of the things which struck me was a a very slight i don't think it's even a similarity it was a feeling that i got which had a wasn't even a strong vibe it was a stone roses thing and they also have they also went back and had a lot of birds influences and the uh, folk rock inks um influences too and uh i i think that that's something which i picked up on amongst this heavy sounding rock revivalism or you know as you say drawing from the small pool of classic british rock which a lot of the bands around that time when expecting to fly came out those bands were drawing on and it was something different and i realized that i'd heard that before in another band but not one of the originals and i thought that that was something very stone roses like when i first heard it well there are definitely there are definitely shades of the of the roses on on some of the songs you know there's kind of very shuffling almost offbeat drum passages you know um and and some of the slightly baggy sounds that that, yeah. that infuse some of those songs on expecting to fly you know that, that's that's interesting i i definitely felt the same way um but yeah it, it's just the fact that they didn't sound like everybody else exactly you know? yeah I, I, I can hear, and all of those influences, by the way, that other bands were drawn on, I love, and I love all of those other bands. That much should be obvious by now. But there was something nice about the fact that the Blue Tones were drawn on something slightly different and were drawn on something that had some kind of significance for me because those records were, were in the home for me. So, And even though I might not have been aware of it, I think that was one of the things that, that drew me to them. I have quite an interesting story about the... He says boldly. Uh, I quite. <laughs> I, let's let's. Uh, will will I edit that out? No, I'm going to leave it in, and I'll leave this bit in as well. When I say an interesting story, I mean, of course, I have a story that some okay. people may find interesting about my introduction to the the blue tones. So it th- this kind of spans two phases of the the blue tones career. So I saw okay. them on probably one of their first 
UK tours. I saw them in Glasgow. They played King Tut's Wawa Hut, I think, a couple of times in 1995. And I saw them on one of those occasions and picked up a copy of um, Slight Return, The Fountainhead, that kind of first issue of that. And it was a very sort of limited edition, seven-inch single. It came on blue vinyl. And I remember buying it at the gig and getting it home. And it came in a little plain white sleeve with a little uh, sort of 25 mil white sticker on that sort of said which number in the in the run of 1500 it was or however many were were run off and I kept that as a sort of prized possession for a, a long long time and then uh, many years later possibly around about the time that they released Luxembourg mm-hmm. so we're into the into the early part mid part of the noughties yeah. and my then wife had organised some kind of fundraiser type affair for young people she was a comed worker and so she'd organized this sort of event and the blue tones were going to play a sort of very small intimate gig in this tiny place in edinburgh and i said to her well look you know you're going to go off and meet them um would would you take this single along with you and have them sign it for me that would just be great for me i would really that'd be wonderful and so of course she took it off and i got invited along to the gig later on that night and saw the gig and we got home and i said oh and did you did you manage to get you know my my limited edition signed she said, oh yeah yeah and she handed it over and it was uh signed absolutely it was signed uh, and every single one of the the band members had signed it and they had all signed it to her um uh, <laughs> <laughs> and that of course was you know it was annoying but okay fine whatever at that point <laughs> interestingly though then what happened was i ended up getting divorced And of course, then you have this constant reminder and it it takes on this extra layer. You kind of see it as evidence, very early evidence of the decay of this relationship, you know. (laughs) Um, So when I interviewed Mark Morris, probably about two years ago now, I took this along and explained to him what had happened and explained the circumstances behind the breakup. And he took it for me. I said, look, you know, would you would you sign it again uh, mm-hmm. this time to me and he signed it uh, to Paul this is yours it always was love Mark and wow. I, I think Fantastic. I think that kind of that captures a whole lot of stuff about the blue tones I think you know yeah. it, it, it captures the romance of it it captures the dark humor that lies at the heart of it um, so yeah I was there from the very beginning but there was always uh, running through it uh, after a certain point this kind of uh, very tragic element to it as well what, what about you? When did you first come across them? Yeah, I'll get to that very shortly. I just want to go back to that story. Uh-huh. That, that's, <laughs> that, that's absolutely fantastic. That's a beautiful end to that story. And as you say, that's very Bluetonian. I would say just that little thing that Mark wrote. I think that's that's fantastic because you know, they we'll get to the lyrics because I'm always blown away by when you end up or you go back to that album, you listen to it and uh, you you listen to the words very, very deeply. And there is so much is complex and deep and eloquent. And you know that somebody's felt something and wrote this song, feeling that and knowing how it feels to be like that. And that, Part of your story sums that up, and I think that's right what you said, that that's very much an essence of what that that band is about. And I think that's great. I love that story. I'm sorry about the divorce part. It's probably long gone and, well, at least part of ancient history, but... 
Well, as as the blue tones say, you know, things change. Uh, there yeah. was there, there was a parting gesture, and things have changed, and we have we have moved on, and everybody's very happy now. So that's that's all that really matters. Yeah, good, yeah, good. good. Right, come yeah. on then. Can you remember? Yes. Well, that's that, that's <laughs> that's a good question. Can I remember? I I can, but it's very it's quite shady and fuzzy because uh, the first time that they came into my consciousness. Um, I, they weren't playing live there. It was at Glastonbury 95. They weren't right. playing. But um, one of the things which stands out from that event, and it was a, you know, it was a big event. It was a, you know, it was, what was it, the 25th anniversary. It was slap bang in the middle of Britpop. It was a great, it was one of the great Glastos, I think. And uh, they weren't playing. But the fact that watching or hearing them for the first time come over one of the um, video screens before the bands even came on for that day. We were going to roam in the fields. It was a blistering hot day, I remember. And uh, we were walking past the front of the pyramid stage and they had these uh, video screens up and they were playing, uh, are you blue or are you blind? And that was the first time I'd ever heard them. And And I stopped and I was like, what is this? Who is this? This has some, as we mentioned, Stone Roses quality to it. The melodies, the guitars. Uh, I can't remember much about what happened at Glastonbury 95, but that stands out. And for that, that was the first time that they came into my consciousness. And after that, um, yeah, I, I think 95 was one of these years I was fully into the, oh, I would say the Britpop mix by that time. Uh, the situation personally was uh, college was over and I deferred for a year until I was starting university in the following year. So September 96. So I had I had a lot of time off. I was living in an absolute uh, death trap of a flat. It was like um, a sealed box above a printing shop. So you, <laughs> we, we were getting high by many many different ways including <laughs> paint paint and ink which would seep up through the floors so it was particularly unpleasant but we spent a lot of time out and about at that time and uh i was, I was working in a kitchen in the night in a hotel claiming dole and housing benefit at the same time so it was all a bit getting wherever you get whatever you can from wherever you can and kind of then blowing it all going out and having a good time all that late summer 95 yeah and as we said earlier on the music at that point was it was full-on and raucous it was this rock you know the oasis tunes were flying out of every pub and blur were getting a bit heavier as well and it was all quite loud and brash but then i had this this moment amongst all the the live music this one video came on at this big event and that that kind of changed it and we talk a lot when we chat each week about moments which change you or the albums which change you which is i suppose kind of the point of why we talk about them anyway but that was one of these moments and then it went on that expecting to fly became one of those albums and amongst all the noise all the rock all the all the lad and everything i found something very tender 
something to connect to, something emotional. It spoke in a different way to me, and it became a standard album. And, and out of maybe the three albums which were played the most, it was definitely one of them at that time, which is surprising because everything was in full flow for being loud and out of order and yet expecting to fly isn't like that i mean it has its faster moments it has its great singles and everything but for me songs like the fountainhead and a parting gesture putting out fires things like that they're they're the ones which made it one of the three rotating albums at that time well and, it's interesting uh, yeah. nick you, you've touched on a couple of things there about the, the, the things that separate the blue tones from some of the other bands at the time and about the, the kind of um, the delicacy that was there, the tenderness. Yeah. When I interviewed Mark, I've, I pulled this quote out actually because I, I had a funny feeling one of us was going to touch on something that would kind of connect with us. I asked Mark about influences. One of the things that I asked him about was whether or not the Smiths had been an influence. Mm. Uh, really because the Smiths are such a big deal for me. But here is the quote from Mark in response to that question, Nick, and I think this ties in really well with what you've just said. Mark said, everything about the Smiths resonated with us. It was melodic. It felt old, but new. And there was this emotional depth and intelligence to the lyrics. It's a cliche, but they really did sound like they were singing to all of us. For us, it was that sense of beauty and delicacy. We didn't get into a band to be able to say, look at the size of our huge swinging dicks. We got into a band to create sweet, pretty little things. And we've always been aware of our delicate nature in relation to our peers. We were a bunch of frilly shirts surrounded by Fred Perry. The Smiths were our benchmark, something for us to aspire to. Wow. Now, isn't that great? I mean, doesn't doesn't that just, I mean, really, we, we could now sort of cut, an hour-long conversation down to just me reading that quote, right? So let let me just pull out some of the key words there. Um, Melodic, emotional depth, intelligent lyrics, singing to all of us, beauty, delicacy, uh, sweet, pretty little things, delicate nature, frilly shirts. I I mean, it's just that is the whole thing, right? And I'm I'm with you. I, I love the kind of more outlandish aspects of Britpop. I fell hook, line and sinker for the lad thing, albeit for a very brief moment of time, thank goodness. Mm. But, you know, I liked it. I liked singing cigarettes and alcohol, even though I didn't smoke or drink. <laughs> I, you know, I, I liked the, the yeah. kind of Liam swagger. I liked all of it. I loved all of that. But that wasn't me. And I don't think that anybody is just that. I think everybody has within them that need for something beautiful and something delicate, something that speaks to the person they really are. And when Mark Morris said that to me, that threw a whole different light onto the entire catalogue of the Blue Tones for me. It, it could it could actually be a fan of the Blue Tones talking about them now. If you were to take maybe the, the second part or the, the last third off the quote and just talk about why they were so influential or why they were so loved it could be one of us talking about the blue tones because they are that is for me probably the most succinct summary of um, what they are or at least they were and uh, what that what they meant then i think it's interesting that you said that um 
uh, about the lad culture thing. I mean, for me, I did get involved in it quite heavily, and but it became quite obvious quite quickly how kind of shallow and sour that was turning out to be, and it became mm. quite a bit distasteful. Thinking about that and what you just said as well, it's um, a lyric which I picked out from the Fountainhead, which I always, which always kind of come came back to me around that time and even more so now when I look back and it's God knows I try, God knows I tried to be something more than I am. Yeah. And that, that seemed to be what me myself was trying to achieve. And I think others were trying to find too, that there's, you know, I tried to be like this and everyone is trying to be like that, but, I'm trying to be something more than I am or not even more than I am or something different from what I am. I think in that way, um, expecting to fly, hit the emotional buttons that um, things, albums I definitely maybe didn't because they were hitting different buttons and causing euphoria in different ways. Whereas I feel that songs on expecting to fly were kind of connecting in the same way like we talked about Suede last time, that they were telling stories which kind of meant something to to people all over the country. I think that um, maybe that's uh, that's a benchmark or that's that's part of a, of uh, the good albums, the great albums of the time that they're they're reaching other parts, other albums cannot reach to paraphrase a <laughs> beer be commercial. Well, you know, there's 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 something that again it's funny you say that because there was another quote that i pulled out from something that i wrote about going to see mark in concert he played this little in fact he was there just uh last weekend i think a little place in glasgow called the pie and pint or something like that um and i'd driven over to see him this night and for whatever reason he was delayed in arriving and so it was a very late kind of kickoff if you like and i was i'd been stood at the bar nursing half a pint of diet coke for probably a good two hours two and a bit hours and thankfully i'd met a couple of very lovely people who, who recognized me from twitter and had a bit of a chat with them but really i was there on my own and i was lost in my own thoughts and by the time mark came on stage i'd become very maudlin for some reason just i, I was very aware of feeling quite lonely you know i knew i was going to come home to my wife i, I knew i was going to come home to my daughter there, there were people there for me to speak to but i felt very alone and what I wrote when I got home was this. This was the sort of last thing that I, I well, one of the last things I wrote in the review of that, that night's gig was what's often overlooked when the blue tones are discussed is the fact that underneath the glorious melodies and the anthemic choruses, there is a maudlin heart beating. That is the real key to why they are songs that matter. Maybe it's just me. It's late. I'm probably a bit emotional. No, no, it's true. There is a sadness there. I can feel it tonight and I'm glad of its company. And and then what's really funny is, because this ties in again with that earlier story about how I came to them, there's a slight kick in the pants at the end of it. There's a sadness there. I can feel it tonight. I'm glad of its company. And I was actually writing this on my phone as I was watching the gig. I was kind of writing a kind of live review live. Right. And so I've said this business about feeling sad. And I'm glad of the company. And at that very moment, I had to type this. That maudlin air has just been kicked out of the bar with a rowdy rendition of Benny and the Jets by Elton John that puts a smile as wide as the Clyde on every face, even mine. And I think I think there again, you get something about the true nature of the blue tones, the ability to 
reach you with the lyrics, to soothe you with the music and the words, but also to lift your spirits, to, to make you feel like there is somebody else who's feeling the same way. Yeah, and I think you, you kind of nailed it earlier on as well, that there's a dark humour there. And um, that that's that's another thing which raises you as well. I mean, you're right that there's a, a maudlin nature to it. And if you follow the, the lyrics closely, they're smart and they're, they're very introspective sometimes, you know. And uh, But then there are lines which can make you laugh out loud or smile because they're just like, just the, maybe the, the rhyming of the words or just the surreal nature of the situation that he's singing about and or just the way it's phrased. It's Yeah. I think I think uh, the Smiths had something about that, too. But I think I think Mark Morris actually is better at it, to be honest, uh, having all those aspects going on at the same time where there's, yeah. It's pulling all the heartstrings, but also making you grin from ear to ear at the same time. Well, I, I think that is uh, true, uh, and we can both look forward to uh, a visit from the uh, the Morrissey police for for, for David oh. to suggest it. But, but yeah. I, I I think you're absolutely right, Nick. I think I think that that Mark Morris is, and again, it's one of these things that, for whatever reason, I, th- I think it's because of the the. I think it was you. I said something to about this actually this week that you know the a lot of really great bands in the sixties are either unknown or underappreciated or don't get the appreciation they deserve because of the cultural dominance of the band from Liverpool and the the Droney Bones. Yeah, yeah, you're and, right. And, and a very similar thing happens in the 90s, right? Yeah, absolutely. You, you, you yeah. cannot move for people who own a copy of Common People or who only know Park Life and definitely Maybe uh, or yeah. Watch the Story of Morning Glory. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, it's great that people bought those records. It's, it's wonderful. But it does mean that bands like the Blue Tones and a writer like Mark Morris are kind of denied, arguably, their, their rightful place. And when you talk about some of those lyrics... When I think about talking to Clary, I've jotted down some bits and pieces that, that I really like. There's that lovely line about, you make me happy when I was happy to start with. Yeah. I mean, that that's a lovely little line. Yeah. That's, that's a wonderful, wonderful line. You know, that, that, when I hear that, I think about how I felt, continue to feel, if I'm being perfectly honest, uh, around my wife. I was quite happy on my own. You know, if everything was all right, I was living this, you know, life of a, a happy bachelor. Right. Uh, everything was lovely. I was happy. But she makes me happy, despite the fact I was happy. That's a wonderful ability for a songwriter to be able just to, in one line, capture so beautifully why it is that you are in love with somebody. Because they make you happy. That's a terrific line. Yeah, of course. And then to follow that up with, you make my life so precious and so easy to part with. I mean, that's wonderful. I mean, that's almost like... We should have an alarm for when I'm going to say something really pretentious. <laughs> you know, if you if you read The Age of Reason by uh, Satra, there's that line in it where he says, uh, no one is a man who has not found something to die for. Right. Yeah. And it's a kind of very existentialist statement. Right. You know, you, you, need, you need something to die for in order to make you, you a complete person or to make you alive. And that's there in that line. Right. You make yeah, my life yeah. precious. And yet so easy to part with. 
I mean, these are these are the sorts of lyrics that people think Morrissey was writing. To die by your side would be a heavenly way to die. See, I think you make my life so precious, so easy to part with is more romantic. Oh yeah, of course, and, and more more beautiful, right? And yeah. so I'm I'm with you. I think he is actually one of the best lyricists that we've had. I think he's terrific. Yeah, yeah, me too. I totally agree. And you know, one of the things that's, uh, as you were saying about this whole, um, you have kind of a top tier or a, a, the mega groups, which kind of cast a huge shadow over the rest. The thing which always bugged me and continues to do so is that you, uh, not you personally, but um, journalists have often referred to bands like the Blue Tones, Shed 7, Sleeper, as like second division or mm. like the other bands, you know. And that's that's dismissive and it's disrespectful. And just because, you know, maybe in terms of sales or commercial viability or something, I don't know, maybe they they weren't Premier League as what the others were referred to, but that, that's just really... It's just really unfair, and I think it, it it really diminishes the art which was created by not just the Blue Tones, but other bands which were seen as the also rands. You know, there's the big three or the big four, or whatever. And you know, and when um, Expecting to Fly came out, it knocked Morning Glory off the top spot. You know, it Absolutely wasn't right. for, it wasn't for long, but it went straight it went into number one, and it knocked the the biggest selling. British album in I don't know how many decades off the top spot. I mean, it, it went back, but you know, it was you know, it was not just a piddling little release which trundled out to a few hundred fans. You know, it well, was... it's it's almost as if Nick, it's almost as if, and who am I to make such a statement? It's almost as if some of the journalists who are writing these things and who were writing those things weren't actually listening to the records. Well, I, I yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's it's. Yeah. I, I feel that way when I read these kind of revisionist pieces in the press nowadays, because that's where this kind of you know second division stuff comes from, isn't it? You know, you get you know sort of um, articles in the Guardian or I don't know in, on the Quietus, and they make these sort of sniffy comments. Yeah. And I think I'm not so sure that anybody who actually knows anything about pop music. And before anybody tweets, I'm not suggesting that I do know anything about pop music, but I'm not so sure that anybody who knows anything about pop music, I'm not so sure that anybody who cares about pop music, I'm not so sure that anybody who feels something when they listen to a really great pop song would say that kind of thing about a band like the Blue Tones or any of those other bands that you mentioned, Sleeper, Shed 7, for me, you know, some of my favourites like Thurman. Slight and throw away some of those records may have been by some of those bands, but there were also incredible, you know, moments of craft and lyrical brilliance within almost all of them. And in relation to the Blue Tones, certainly in that first album, it is one brilliant, beautiful, blistering piece of pop perfection after another. It really is. Yeah, it really is. I don't, um, I wouldn't pick one out to remove at all, to be honest. I mean, it it really runs through from start to finish and it's well paced and it's well thought out and the each song is perfectly executed and 
Well, just, that was yeah. that was what I said to a couple of people said in response to my statement about it being the best British debut of all time. Yeah. A couple of people, more than a couple of people, suggested the Stone Roses. And I, I mean, I get it. Yeah. Expecting to Fly didn't have the same impact as the Stone Roses. Few records in British pop music have had the same impact as the Stone Roses. That was a game changer. And, and it is the record in terms of shaping what was to come post-grunge. It, it's, it's wonderful. But my response to everybody who suggested it was, well, you could take Elizabeth My Dear out of there, right? Yes, yeah, pretty throwaway, I'd say, yeah. You know, some people like it. You know, I get that. I'm not saying it's a terrible song, but you could take that song off of the album. It could mm. quite easily be tucked away as a B-side somewhere, a little a little curate's egg of a pop song. Yeah. And it wouldn't change the nature of the album. I Like you, I cannot think of what you would take out or how you would change the running order to make Expecting to Fly any better than it is. No. It's it's very difficult, and I tried because because <laughs> because of what we said and uh, how I um I reacted to your your claim, and uh, yeah, I have to say that that was one of the reasons why I kind of reviewed my opinion of it. I mean, I, I've I've always held it in very very high esteem this album, and I loved it, and I always loved it, and. Uh, when I started buying vinyl again, it was one of the first ones which I sought out to get because uh, I just wanted it because that was one of the albums from that time and I wanted it again and I wanted it in that format. And just to have it in my hand, you know, that square, that, that uh, peacock staring at you like that and just... Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a beautiful album cover. It really is a beautiful album cover. What, what, what about... Um... I want to throw a curveball in here just for a second. Okay, Um, do it. There's a possibility, of course, that after we've chatted, that I'm going to be speaking to Adam Devlin. So there's two things that I want to throw at you about Adam Devlin. One, his ability as a guitarist. It's stunning throughout. It's uh, on the, the pop songs, on the faster ones, pitch perfect. It's almost... Ma-like in its jangliness, but it's it, there's something more to it. It's a bit more. There's a bit more meat to it. There's a bit more body yeah. to it, right? The blue tones and the the album itself referred to, or, it, or someone's trying to put it into some pigeonhole jangle pop. What the hell is that? <laughs> jangle pop. It sounds like something which is on like children's BBC or something. <laughs> Coming up next is jangle pop. What is that? Yeah. I don't know, but I'd like to see it. Yeah, yeah. yeah maybe uh, maybe Adam Devlin's going to be on that too at some point. Ask him. Maybe he'll, he's got a second career in children's TV, but I don't doubt with his fruity language, I doubt they'll have him on. But um, I think, yeah, it's something like Johnny Marr's dexterity, but there's more to it than that. That's proper rock guitar in some of those singles like you, you know um cut some rug um can't be trusted he's like I don't, and that's just one of my favorite tunes yeah me too uh, they've they've done in all their albums that's just a great great song but then you w- when you let him loose and slow it down like a parting gesture and uh, things change it's so it, it, it's almost like he has translated what Mark Morris is singing about or the words itself into the, the notes 
It's so perfectly matched. And you can't take it away from the rest of the band. You can't take it away from Scott Morris and Ed Chester's as well. You can't take it Absolutely. away from... They're, they're a whole. And that's what makes all the songs so great. But for me, the guitar is a mirror to the voice and a mirror to the lyrics. And he gets it spot on every time. No, no, I'm, I'm with you about Adam, Adam Devil. And I have this... That's not a theory. It's a half-baked idea at best. But, you know, when I watch old footage of uh, Marvin Gaye, Elvis Presley, Frank Sinatra, you know, Aretha Franklin, Diana Ross, one of the things that strikes me about those singers is the fact that it's effortless, right? You, yeah. you never see them reaching for a note. You know, I watch maybe X Factor on a Saturday evening and I see kids, you know, hitting notes for sure. You know, they're good singers, some of these kids. But... Man, they are really stretching for those notes. <laughs> you know, you can see that their face changes, the the body yeah. changes. They're really yeah. reaching for it. And you know, fair play to them. You know, I I wouldn't reach some of those notes with a stepladder. But <laughs> but those singers never look like it's you know, it's just like it's there. Yeah. I feel very very similarly about guitarists. You know, when mm. I watch uh, Adam Devlin or when I listen to Adam Devlin. It just seems so effortless, and I'm sure it's not. I'm sure it's very, very difficult. I'm sure there's a a huge amount of, you know, practice and long hours and yada, yada, yada. But he makes it look effortless. He makes it sound effortless. It sounds natural. It sounds intuitive. One of the other things I asked Mark about all those months ago, it was just about the time that Shed 7 were going to release Instant Pleasures. Which, right. by the way, is the best Shed 7 record, just in case anybody's wondering. <laughs> and I asked them about, you know, well, you know, Shed 7, new album. What about, you know, maybe, could we, what What do you, th- maybe, a new, what, you know, a new <laughs> album from you? And he said something really interesting. He, he, he talked about the, the, the bit of revival that was going on just now. He talked about the fact that they were out on tour celebrating their catalogue. They'd done Starship. And then he said... Um, but you can't simply say that just because this band or that band has a record out that you should have one too. If you take Shed 7, that hasn't just happened. It's taken a long time. It's been a very organic thing. I think in their case, it's going to be a big success, but that doesn't happen overnight. You shouldn't make an album because you think, I could sell X amount of copies and buy a boat. You (laughs) make an album because you feel like you have to, and the blue tones aren't in that place. They say, I both love that answer, because it suggests that he is genuinely interested in the art and the craft of songwriting and that the songs that he is writing are the songs that he wants to write. And at the same time, it filled me with a terrible, terrible sadness that the blue tones weren't in that place. What do you think? Do you think they will ever get back to that place? Do you think we could at some point hear new music from the blue tones or do you think we just have to celebrate the back catalogue? I think we should do both. I think we should celebrate the back catalogue every single day religiously teach it in schools but i also think that yes i think i think we will because i take ride as the example here yeah um here was a band which uh were very much together and friends and they went through so much of course, they had their problems. I don't really know the story as to why the Blue Tones kind of came to an end. I don't think there was... I can't imagine them having animosity. 
there might have been something i don't know but with with ride yeah there were things going on they're going in different directions andy bell taking too much control mark gardner not liking it whatever happened there it was a long time a long time before they got back together and but they felt like they it was right for them to do so and uh what an album they came back with and i think that um if there's if if there's nothing which is irretrievable or um unmendable between the blue tones then there'll be a time because mark morris is writing his own stuff again and you know i think from what i get through uh, the twitter exchanges that you read that they're in touch and then you know obviously they they tour together and play their old stuff so i've got a feeling that at some point they'll do something and that's a hope but i also may be tempted to go and put 50p on it somewhere well that, well, that would be about it yeah what about this ad i am on on twitter <laughs> this kind of uh, provocateur uh this 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 man sitting by his keyboard mm-hmm. poking poking people who deserve to be poked and uh, doing so in my opinion rather brilliantly he's he's like a sort of very benign uh, intelligent troll i wonder if he's actually like that i mean <laughs> I, I think there's an argument for having maybe one or two twitter account one which is you and one which is your older ego for, <laughs> for ripping into anyone and you can always like plead innocence so that it's not you but he's he's not doing that is it it's clearly adam devlin ripping into people <laughs> what i'd say is i think here uh, he may not be the hero that twitter wants but he's the hero that twitter needs <laughs> that would that would be my summation of the ad i am persona well, can I just say to anybody from the Blue Tones management who is listening in that you can you can have that for a T-shirt, uh, but but, but yeah. Nick and I Nick and I won free tickets to every show on the tour. That that is genius. Yeah, <laughs> I think that'd be great, wouldn't it? Just a sort of silhouette of Adam's face. We can have the glasses. Add, the glasses add I am so. just the glasses. Yeah, just yeah. the glasses. Add I am the the hero Twitter deserves. Yeah, that's brilliant. Oh, well done, Nick. That that is a wonderful place to, to bring you. things to a conclusion. I think we've yeah, why not? We've, uh, we've why rambled not? on for a, about an hour once more. Um, Nick, I can only say thank you so much again for for joining me. Uh, it's always a pleasure. Yeah, it's a pleasure for me too, man. Every time. I'm yeah. curious to know what was it that made you start playing music, writing music. What were the things that kind of informed that and influenced that? Well, I would say. Um, my parents had a, a, a part to play in that because um, they are both musicians. Dad was a guitar player, good guitar player as well. Good guitar player, terrible teacher. Um, and my mum plays as well. She plays piano more and they both sing. And in actual fact, they used to go around, you know, the pubs and clubs as a duo singing country and western songs. And, and you know, because, I mean, my dad's passion was sort of well you know he's a bit of a muso so he was into progressive rock but also country and western and um rock music but not heavy metal music whereas my mum was more you know sort of bubblegum music from the 60s so they had like my mum had did have god i wish she still did but an amazing collection of seven new singles 
that she'd had, you know, all her life. Whereas my dad, you know, his albums. So I grew up uh, in that environment where there was lots of music and lots of musical instruments. Although that, I would also say that I still kind of had to arrive at it myself. You know, when your parents are sort of pushing you into music when you're young, you're sometimes a bit reluctant, aren't you? You need to get that drum. You know, you start playing recorder or the violin at primary school. Um, so I didn't really start playing myself till I was about 12, 13, something like that. That's when I really properly got into the guitar. And that's because I guess I just started to. I also had, I had an older brother, a couple of years older than me. That kind of helped as well because he, I mean, he, he, he was sort of a trend topper. Like I had a really eclectic taste in music or he didn't really know what he liked. But, um, but you know, you even had everything from sort of Bross to The Clash. So, um, but he did have some good records. And, um, yeah, so I guess around that age, I started to like, just genuinely like listening to music myself. And it was at that point, yeah, it seems like it was more my mum's stuff. It was things like Simon and Garfunkel and the Everly Brothers, Herman and the Hermits. The Beatles, obviously, and but also, you know, feeding into that as well was just bits and pieces my brother was into. I mean, I was I was too young really uh, for punk. That was sort of, you know, I, I remember going to school dressed as one, a fancy dress, but I didn't understand what <laughs> punk was. I was just a bit too young. So I, my sort of first music I really kind of got into was um, stuff like. Yes, the obvious stuff, really, for, for guitar, you know, budding guitarists at that time, Aztec Camera, The Smiths, um, Orange Juice, some Scottish, so, you know, a lot of Scottish bands, actually, for the record. And, yeah, soulful, wistful, uh, you know, bands. And, and so that, that that's what the stuff that, that was around at the time that I was starting to get turned on to. But, the, you know, my sort of love of music sort of grew fairly organically. Um, but, you know, I, I definitely had a leg up in that respect because, if, you know, for, for a start, if you want to learn to play the guitar, it's really handy if there's the house full of guitars, which which ours was, um, and other sort of instruments and, and, and bits and pieces. As I mentioned earlier, I did um, try to get my dad to teach me some stuff, but he, he, was, yeah, he had no patience for teaching. He taught me the odd thing and... And in the, but, but in the end, to be fair, he, uh, he one Christmas he bought me the Beatles Complete, which is like every Beatles song and, you know, 40 pitch chords. And he just said to me, just learn that. <laughs> just learn that. It's all there. That's all you need. And uh, all right, OK. And um, I had a, a record player at the time where you, you, could, you could, you know, you could shift the pitch. So you could slightly slow it down, slightly speed it up. So, and that's what I kind of, that's kind of how I, I really sort of learned to play the guitar. I would just put records on and play them, play along to them as best as I could. And Smith's records and Beatles records, Simon and Gunfunkel records. And if it was stuff like, you know, especially the Beatles stuff, because the keys are all over the place. If it's too difficult, I would just shift the pitch, you know, into a key that I could play at that time or, you yeah. know, or, or at least have an attempt at playing. But I, I think he was 
I think he was right because I've said that to people since, you know, when we've been talking about learning the guitar. So we just get that. Yeah, there's 200 Beatles songs in that book. You learn all that <laughs> because you're not just learning. <laughs> you're not just learning sort of technically how to play the guitar. You're learning about songs and and um, structures and middle eights and coders and even if you don't really know what those things at the time you, you that's what you're sort of taking in and same with the smith as well um so because you know, i wasn't taught how to play the guitar i wasn't taught at school because it costed money then um but i did have a good friend who was getting guitar lessons at school and he would just come out and show me what he's learned basically and he was listening to a lot of the same things as me so he'd go into his guitar teacher with um like and everything but the girl song i remember we were trying to learn that and his his guitar teacher was brilliant he'd show him and then come out and show me so i was kind of getting guitar lessons indirectly but the other thing about those bands is is that they are all bands who are trying to say something more than just ooh baby baby i love you look at the moon in june was the was the lyrical thing was the was the content important to you as well or was it just the music for you as a guitarist i think at the time, I, I think I was tuning into the, the guitars, but as you say, there was obviously something else going on. Um, because yeah, I, I know what you mean, and they're all, you know, very good writers. And think about the stuff Ronnie Frame was writing when he was like 14, 15 years old. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Um, but I obviously have more of a grasp on that now than perhaps I did it then when I was just listening to the jangly jazzy stuff and that, that's what was appealing to me. So that's going on, you're, you're kind of 12, 13, 14. Take me to your first band, your first attempt at you know being in a band or was the first attempt at being in a band the Blue Tones? What, what's the story? No, I mean, I was in some couple... I mean, I think kids when they're at school, they're in bands that aren't yeah. even real bands. Being in like a couple of bands at school where we didn't really have any instruments and or songs, <laughs> but we had a name and a kind of idea, you know, of the image we wanted and the artwork. And you know, so you're, you're it's a sort of um slightly living in a fantasy world really yeah so i was in the school band although there were you know because you're in a school band you're in various um versions you know different lineups it was pretty awful anyway we just played like brian adams songs (laughs) (laughs) summer of 69 so i was in that but that wasn't really i never felt part part of that because it was was the school band so the lineup would just change the first proper band i was in was a band called uh, A Perfect Mess, and that was a very sort of fey, jangly indie band with a very sort of cutesy girl singer and, you know, three moody looking characters <laughs> who didn't really know what they were doing. And we were, you know, we weren't very good. Obviously, we weren't very good. We were okay. I mean, I still, when I think about that time, I was thinking, well, you know, a couple of those songs actually were okay considering our age um so yeah that was my first proper band so that that was sort of after school when i was at college and um so and interestingly that was at a time 
when um, Mark and Scott were in another band um, called the Bottle Garden, and that band because you know we, we in the bubble of the Hounslow music scene, so you know you just like playing all the same little pubs and stuff, and obviously it'd be to your mates and anyone else who happened to be there, and you didn't get paid for it or anything. But Mark and Scott's band, the Bottle Garden, were like the coolest band in Hounslow. <laughs> I mean, they were all, yeah, I I could never really. I think they just like were cool guys and had lots and lots of friends. Because <laughs> we'd go to like the Red Lion in uh, in Brentford, which is a McDonald's now, of course. Of course, um, but it, yeah. it was, was Hounslow's premier music venue, um, which is not, which honestly is not much of an achievement. But it was. <laughs> And we'd go in there, like, you know, me and, you know, I'd go along with a friend or two, let's go and watch the bottle garden. The place would be rammed. And we'd think, well, it's all right, okay. The guys have obviously got something going on. And they were, you know, they were very sort of unashamedly baggy. Yeah. I guess. Uh, they had huge trousers and, and parkers and all that kind of stuff. And uh, so that, but, but you know, but that, but they was, at that point, they had a different singer and drummer. Mark played lead guitar, uh, Scott played bass, obviously. Um, and what happened in the end is, well, I ended up, I broke up my band because it was kind of going nowhere. I wasn't really, really enjoying it much. And I got to know Mark, I, you know, because we went to different schools, so I didn't know him. I went to different colleges, he went to Hounslow, I went to Richmond. But I knew he was in this band, The Bottle Garden, and I used to see him on... 237 bus and we sort of slowly kind of became aware of each other and we just like nod at each other you know at a bus stop or something um but then um when i moved out of my mum's house i think i was 20 and i was living out in stains at that time you know I was, it was a point where i was like you know i had a job in a record shop and i was playing i was living the dream really I had a job in a record shop and I was playing in bands and I kind of had enough money to go and live in a house with some other people who could also just afford, about afford to share a house. And one of the people was the girl that I used to be in a perfect mess with. Uh, one of the other guys there was a hippie called Raj who just stank <laughs> patchouli oil. And he had an amazing record. So he was, he was great. But, um, but there, we, there was one vacant room, and that's when, because I knew Helena and Raj, we, you know, I knew them. And, but, um, yeah, they said, oh, we've got somebody else moving in. It's that Mark guy out of the box. I was like, oh, right, okay. So that's kind of how we sort of met properly, me and Mark, because we just ended up really by chance through people we knew living in the same house. And then, obviously, I got to know the rest of his band a bit more. And and then I and they, you know he was he was, he was odd their band because um, uh, Mark wasn't singing he wasn't even doing backing vocals as far as I can recall he was just a guitar player and the guy who was singing wasn't particularly good and um, and I sort of started jamming with Mark and Scott a little bit and between kind of the three of us we began to kind of think because then, then it sort of came up of 
um, why, you know, why don't you join our band? We can have two guitar players. At that point, I think we'd started to listen to um, noisy stuff like Ride and My Bloody Valentine. Yeah. You know, you, I think you've, you, you, you really wear your influences on your sleeve at, at that you know, tender years. And they said, well, we're getting, you know, you need two guitars in. The more, the more, the merrier. Um, so I kind of joined their band. But then what obviously what happened is me and Mark and Scott began to spend quite a lot of time with each other because I was living with Mark. Scott would come to the house a lot. And the, the sort of discussion started to be had that there's something wrong in this band because I was clearly a better guitar player than Mark. And Mark was clearly a better singer than the singer. Yeah. And also clearly a better lyric writer than the singer. No offence to the singer. He was okay. So he was like, maybe everyone's doing kind of the wrong job here. So we, um, it's a little bit naughty what we did, actually. We kind of broke the band up under false premises and then formed it again (laughs) (laughs) with a readjusted lineup and i think the also the the drummer in the bottle garden was a lovely guy called greg who was a great drummer a ferocious drummer but he he was also unfortunately very much in this grip of rave culture Mm. so he would be out every saturday night just just getting off his face and Sundays really, you know, because we had jobs and things like that. Sunday was really rehearsal time, and he stopped showing up for rehearsals because, you know, he's very heavily into that scene. And so yeah, so when we reformed the band, it was only me, Mark, and Scott. But you know, everybody moved along one place. Mark moved to vocals and lyrics, and um, he he ditched the guitar completely at that point. It's like I won't play the guitar. I don't need two guitars. You play the guitar. So I became guitar player. Scott obviously stayed on bass, but started singing too. And uh, we, and obviously we needed a drummer. And so yeah, we went. A little, it was a little bit Spinal Tap. We went for a few of them. Um, <laughs> not not in not in a sense of we gigged with them, but we just auditioned drummers for a little while. Um, I should say as well at that point. This is the point at which we got to know Dodgy. Because I think Mark and Scott seen them play in Kingston, you know, and it's obviously when they were very, very young and raw and uh, and they gotten to know them. And in actual fact, I think Mark still remember a time when when him and Scott used to walk around their sort of housing estate in Heston Hounslow. Andy and Nigel would come out of the, the house that they were living in and just basically abuse them. They would take the piss out of them for wearing flares. And, <laughs> <laughs> and then, then they saw them, you know, playing in this club in Kingston. I remember them going, I said, I need to see this band there. You know, they sound like the Who or something. They're incredible. Um, so we kind of got to know them. And, and what we really liked about Dodgy was that they had built their own room. Well, it was a garage. They had converted their own garage in their house they were living in Heston into a rehearsal space. And it was a pretty good one, too. It was really, really well soundproofed. And, um, and we were like, you know, because that's like one of the big problems when you're sort of young and you really don't have that much money. It's like, well, where do you go? You, you yeah. end up doing a little four hours. So we used to go to West Star Studios in Heston. 
and do little four-hour sessions there. But this time, well, these guys, you know, we, we, we can't, we're getting to know these guys, and obviously we were like, I went to see them too. It's like, yeah, they're really good. Because they were at that time. They were just really, really, really powerful three-piece. And they were doing something slightly different than before they got signed. They'd had, they'd um, have a psychedelic light show going on, sometimes a DJ on stage. And it was a little bit different from... Yeah from how dodgy kind of ended up but it was very exciting but not as exciting as this rehearsal room that they had that's what we had <laughs> that's what we had our eyes on really so we we came became very very pally with them and say you know can we use your room sometimes and so uh, yeah yeah of course you can and so we started using their room and then, and then what we started to happen was i think at that point all three lived in the house. Matthew, Nigel, Andy all lived in the house. But it was a big house on three floors. And there was a couple of other characters living there. A DJ guy called Chris. A big, I think he was a Kiwi hippie guy called Kevin. But Kevin moved out. When Kevin moved out, Mark moved in. So <laughs> we got somebody else to take up his room. He's like, oh, you know, let's get someone in there infiltrate <laughs> and then, um, then what happened was chris the dj guy he moved out so i moved in so you can see where this is going we were gradually, yep. we were kind of gradually taking over their house and uh eventually i'm trying to think if we all lived there i me mark and eds all lived there scott still lived at his nan's at that time but his nan's was like two minutes walk away it was like on, on the other side of the playing field so we were virtually all living there i think at that point nigel was still there and andy was still there matthew had moved out so it was blue tones dodgy household and we had absolute carte blanche to use their room when they weren't using it um so yeah so that's that's kind of sort of the evolution of being in you know crap bands to finally arriving at one where you start to think you know it could be something here i think we poached eds by the way but that's no secret he was in soho at the time i'm sure you remember soho hippie chip <laughs> that's right yeah who were you know who were a sort of fairly flimsy pop group but had you know but but had some success you know they had a record deal and they toured and things like that. And Ed's actually um, toured America um, with Soho. They went out there with Jesus Jones and EMF, <laughs> who, were, oh, wow. who for about 10 minutes were huge in America. America sort of acid house was, I think, at the time. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's weird with Ed's because he'd actually done quite a lot of proper things before he joined the Blue Tones, you know, he played on records and toured America and he'd been on top of the pops and things like that. When we went to, and was, again, there's a dodgy connection here because Matthew introduced Eds to Mark one night and um, he was drumming with Soho. He wasn't enjoying, you know, he was, he was having a good time because he was getting to go to America and stuff like that. But obviously he clearly wasn't enjoying the music because he was just, playing along to drum machines and sequences and and Eds was into the clash and the small faces and you know, that's the, the stuff that he sort of grew up loving and um yeah we just pretty much outright poached him and said why don't you come and you know 
we've got some songs. We haven't got many. We probably have about four or five songs. Come and play on our, some of our songs, see what you think. And he came down one Sunday, rehearsed with us once, and uh, and quit Soho and joined us. Which wow. you know, I know, which on reflection is an incredibly brave thing to do because he was getting paid to play the drums and he'd been on TV and been to America and he kind of ditched all that to, uh, you know, for some, some unemployed guys in Hounslow. He <laughs> 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 had four and a half songs. They, they must have been four and a half incredible songs, right? He, I mean, he must have seen or heard something there that he thought, yeah, I'm throwing my lot in with this. I can't, I can't be completely accurate. One of the songs I only ever made the grade. It was a song called Home from Home. But I think Time and Again was one of those songs, and A Parting Gesture was one of those songs. And uh, yeah, I'd be guessing beyond that. But those two songs, you know, obviously that ended up on Expecting to Fly, were definitely two of the songs we jammed with him. And I think he was probably maybe like the fourth drummer that we'd kind of tried out. And we, I mean, we had some weird ones. We had one guy, a guy called Kieran, um, who came over and he had like gear with him as well. He had like a double bass drum pedal or something. And um, he came over and we went, went into the garage, did a few songs and bashed along. And he seemed you know, pretty competent. Went back into the house, cup of tea, and he said, oh, you know, we had no milk. He said, oh, I'll go down the shops and get some milk. He never come back. <laughs> he, he didn't even come back for, like, his stuff. And that was bizarre. I was thinking, well, like, something happened to him, or are, are we really bad that he, that he hasn't even got the heart <laughs> to kind of say, God, guys, you're terrible. I'm going. So, um, and funnily enough, I think Mark saw him on a tube like a few years later and of course he was just desperately trying to avoid Mark's gaze. Shame really because you know if he'd have been any good he could have been in the band but something spooked him. So um, so yeah that's how we got Ed's. We stole Ed's but yeah he was you know he was not enjoying what he's doing. He was getting paid for it but he wasn't enjoying it at all. Um, so that's pretty much where it all started. And that's when we all, you know, I think me and Mark both worked in record shops at that point. Rival record shops, too. Uh, Scott worked in B-Jams. <laughs> B-Jams? Yeah. <laughs> definitely B-Jams then. It's just, you know, which definitely ages us somewhat. Um, yeah, he did. He used to work in there and he used to, he had a little scam going as well actually i think we're safe now the big jams doesn't really exist anymore does it i know it's ice no. but i used to sell like um stuff out of the back of the shop to, <laughs> to local you know people who had shops like just sell bags of frozen chips and stuff knock off price so he was working now. i don't think ed's had a job but within a few months we were all unemployed because we'd all you know it's Back in those days, you could sort of just go on the dole for a year and you never really had to prove that you were looking for a job. You just had to turn up at the labour exchange every two weeks. Have you done any work in the last two weeks? No, sign here and then you get your gyro. So we unashamedly did that with an eye to, OK, let's, let's all just go on the dole. 
we'll get a housing benefit, which we did. I know it's terrible, wasn't it? Absolute sponges we were. <laughs> For about a year and a half, dull scum. <laughs> but the idea was, you know, to use that time to sort of come up with a bunch of songs that we could then... Because it, it, it really was, it was the first time that we were all, OK, hey, let's give this a go. We might as well give it a go. Get some songs together, get ourselves out there, start playing some proper gigs, not just the pubs in Hounslow. Let's get into to London on the toilet venue scene and, you know, see what happens. Um, so yeah, that's pretty much. That's pretty much the... Right. So that's the that's the evolution from sort of you know school and the, the the early bands, the Bottle Garden, Perfect Mess, and then that leads ultimately. I mean, we're going to make a big leap here, but that leads yeah. ultimately to what I rather boldly, although unapologetically, declared as the best British debut I know, album. I know. I sort of followed that with interest I, I, I did enjoy your piece very much but you know, it's all with these things of course you know I do sort of roll my eyes when at the oh, what about Stone Roses well, it's like I know but that's this is your perspective this isn't science well <laughs> what I was going to say was it always astounds me not even just with your piece that you did there but with any kind of sort of think piece where anyone makes any kind of bold I think this, and I and here's why I think it. Yeah, you'll always get someone in here. What about Beatles first? Oh, well, that's your favourite. This is mine. You know, well, it's it's just outlined in the piece why I think this, but in, but you know that's just. That's well, look, then then two days later, I I wrote a piece about Dex's Midnight Runners and called right. you know Searching for the Young Soul Rebels the greatest debut album of all time. Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it's, it's, I mean that, but that's what that's what pop music should do to you, right? Yeah, yeah. It, sh- it, sh- it should make you have wild, hyperbolic, you know, overreactions to things. It should make you feel stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it doesn't, you know, if it's just, you know, if it's just a technical process, if there was a, a, a formula that you could work out, well, nobody would be interested. No, you know? no, but, you're, absolutely, you're you're absolutely right. But I stick by it. I stick by it. When when people started sort of debating it and saying, well, what about the Stone Roses? My response was very clear. It can't be as good a debut as Expecting to Fly because it's got Elizabeth Maidea. You know, and Elizabeth Maidea is a, a nice, quirky little song. It'd make a lovely B-side. But, you know, the thing about Expecting to Fly for me was, and you saw the piece, mm. it's every song. Every song is flawless musically uh, and lyrically you know it's just a perfect collection like, of know, songs you you can say that i couldn't possibly comment. well of course no <laughs> well let's let's do, let's do that I mean, then I, let's I, 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 go, on, go on you carry on just let's 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 take the fact that you can't say that out of it and that was actually the question i was leading up to so mm. i'm going all in about what i do think about it though well, I mean, let's, let's, yeah, please, please. I would, um, you know, I mean, first of all, it's a very difficult thing to assess when you're so close to it, because, you know, we're, we, we, you know, we're, we're too close to it, aren't we? We made it. So it's then very difficult to sort of be objective, but you can be, I can still have, I don't, you know, you say it's flawless musically and lyrically. I think it's more flawless lyrically than it is musically. I think we were still, 
But it's, you know, it's it's an unquestionable what I mean when I say it's an unquantifiable thing. There's no science to it. It's chaos. Music's chaos and how people perceive it and what they think of it. Um, but so, and yeah, obviously as well, when you're involved in the process as closely as you are, I mean, when you, when you make a record, you do sometimes get to a point where you don't know if it's good or bad or awful or the best thing you know because it just becomes a bit a bit and it's something to, to avoid when you're making records it starts to become sort of functional and starts to become you know if you're sort of locked trying to do a thing and you're doing it over and over you know, every time you do it just sort of a little bit of the soul comes out of it if you know what i mean sure i think even even back then i said i don't know although we've recorded music in different ways or songs in different ways are still tried and trusted and this goes from our first album right to a new athens is play the song three times just go in there and give it everything three times and it will go away and listen to it and um and then you sort of take what's good from that and obviously when we started recording it's very very different as well when you get too technical and stuff but you know you used to record on tape Uh and yeah, it's not like now with Pro Tools and Logic and all this stuff where you can, you can record a hundred guitar solos, pick the best one, or you can even comp one from all a hundred. You know, there's so much you can do now. That it's a, then you just didn't. It was just drop-ins and you could splice tape together. So that, but that's pretty much what we do. We go, right, okay, here's this song. Really what we were looking for is a bass and drum track and anything else that was good maybe that we could use and and that's what we do we just play a song three times at that, at that point mark would be just guide vocaling it because he had the same philosophy to his vocals he would like he'd go in and do three vocals or so i'll do it three times and maybe we'll comp one together from those three and we'll sure. be able to tell straight away uh if it's there or if it isn't so that's kind of how we were working then but but of course you know when we made expecting to fly we it's the first time for most of us, obviously we've made demos with lots of bands and we've made plenty of demos for record companies with blue tones, but it's different, you know, when you're recording an album. So it was obviously the first time for me, you know, spending that much time in a recording studio and it was all new to me. I didn't, you know, it was like, whoa, man, you know, you go and see the desk and it's like, you know, the flight deck of Concord or something. <laughs> all these flashing lights. All these things, they're all effects. Whoa, look at all those effects. So you can get a little bit blinded by science, you know, and it's like, wow, well, well, we've got access to all this stuff. So you have to be careful not to use it all. I say, because it's there, you know. So, yeah, so we were pretty, we were pretty naive, but I guess, I think you, I think on some of the record, maybe benefits from that and i think see it, it again this is odd because i'm too close to it there are things i can hear about that record that perhaps nobody else could other than us because one of the other things that strikes me about that record when i think back about it i don't remember that much but i do remember that it was made virtually nocturnally so we would sleep in the day and it, you know hugh jones the producer is a freak he just he sleeps for about three or four hours and the rest of the time he just works whatever he's doing he's just tinkering away with his compressors and um but he, he's a bit of a workaholic 
but again, again he, he would see his three, four hours sleep would be in the day. He worked at night. So we very quickly became nocturnal. We would go, we'd probably start playing nine, 10 at night. And then we'd go through till six, seven in the morning. And then, uh, wow. and then, yeah, maybe have breakfast and then go to bed. <laughs> I mean, the backdrop to, uh, one of the backdrops to expecting to fly, I do recall very well, it's the O.J. Simpson trial. And it's yeah. televised as well. And because, because of obviously when it was televised, it was on in the middle of the night. So I can clearly remember, you know, going to bed at like six, seven in the morning. And I'm like, ah, oh, great, it's just in time for the O.J. trial. And I put that on to fall asleep. And, but it's an odd thing because to me, when I... It sounds like a nocturnal record, but then it would because I'm, my opinion's coloured by the fact that I was there and it was a nocturnal record. I don't know. No, I, I, I think I think you can feel that though, Adam. I mean, I didn't know that obviously. You you know you've told me I didn't know that, but I, th- I think it has a. I mean, I can remember when it when it came out that I would listen to it at night time. You know, I was at university and was frankly miserable and i can remember uh, listening to it lying in bed so i would stay up to watch prisoner cell block h like yeah, one yeah. o'clock in the morning on itv just to find out whether vinegar tits had got her comeuppance or not <laughs> and then <laughs> yeah and then i would lie in bed and i would listen to either dusk by the the or I, expecting to fly yeah, yeah because they both felt like albums that belonged in the nighttime even even those you know upbeat you know indie disco floor fillers on the album mm-hmm. work in that setting you know so yeah. I, yeah, I, I don't think it's just you I don't think it's just that you're, you're coloured by the experience of, <laughs> of going through it but I also hear you know I also hear like I say sort of naivety of, of what we were doing and there, there are still things that bug me about expecting to fly. I think mean, Blue Tonic's way too fast. Every time I hear it, I mean, honestly, every time I hear it, it just jars with me. Whoa, 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 slow down. What, what was happening that day? But, but again, you know, this, this is what I mean by when you're too close to this, you can't really be truly objective. And if you start getting a bee in your bonnet about one thing, it's probably going to stay there. Um, so oh, having said all of this, it's been a... It's probably been a long time since I've listened to it back to back. Do you know what I mean? Did the whole yeah. thing. I think when, you know, when I, we had a little chat yesterday, I told you, didn't I, that I had to do um, sleeve notes. Sleeve notes, yeah. Yeah, for the re- reissue on vinyl. And I did a bit of boning up about <laughs> researching my own record. Because, <laughs> like, you know, because it was just stuff I couldn't remember. Just like, even when? Uh, um, so... Yeah, that was the last time I listened to it. I thought, oh, you know, I'm going to, you know, do this properly. Maybe I should have a listen to the record. (laughs) Well, you know, one one of the things that that Nick and I were talking about on on Sunday night when we talked about it, and for me it's the most interesting thing about the album, is that, how best to put this? Right, so I obviously write a lot about Britpop. Mm. I mean, and I understand that that term is, you know, not particularly helpful, but you know it was a significant it's moment. To be honest, I, mean, I was bothered about it at the time. Now, I'm, yeah, it's fine. Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah, I, I understand, you know. So, but you could go through quite a lot of those records that were released at that time, mm. and 
you can hear the same things on all of them. So you can mm. hear Slade, the Kinks, the Jam, yeah. the Smiths, and maybe occasionally a little bit of the Specials, and yeah, and, and that's yeah. about it. So it's yeah. a very narrow frame of reference. And yet, when you listen to Expecting to Fly, it's arguably the best example from that whole period of an album that was clearly drawing on different uh, things. And yeah. and for for Nick and I, we talked. And this is very obvious. So because of the title of the album, we talked about Buffalo Springfield, mm-hmm. but we also talked about um, Neil Young, about the birds, about that kind of West Coast absolutely, late sixties. Yeah, absolutely, love as well. Yeah, uh, was um, something we were listening. No, I mean you're absolutely right, and I think we re- never really made any great secret of it. But um, we were, I think, listening to different things to powder. And uh, <laughs> yeah. you, you know what I mean. I, I know exactly what you mean. And I, I think to be fair to, I mean, certainly for me, Mark opened my eyes to a lot of that music. I was aware of some of it, but not all of it. And Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young was another big one. Fantastic. Um, but but it was yeah, it was a, le- a lot of American music. And I don't think it was like a conscious effort at the time to let's just listen to American bands. But we were. And I think we were all introducing each other to different things. You know, at that time as well, you know, this was all... Uh, Scott, when I first met Scott, was into electro and hip-hop. And he was, you know, he could dig songs. And obviously when, yeah. when the Roses came along, he loved the Roses and the Lars. He was obsessed with the Lars. And, but that had really been the stuff he great. He's still... You know, obsessed with the beastie boys it's probably his favorite group of all time those are his favorite records i would say um so we were all and and of course you know i i I had no um i didn't it's not i didn't have an interest in hip-hop it's just i'd never really been exposed to it like that and so we were all kind of teaching each other about different things and you know and believe it or not but Mark and Scott and Ned didn't really know like a lot of the stuff that I was listening to at the time especially other stuff like felt and the pastels and all this kind of indie music that had just passed them by yeah. so we were all kind of teaching each other and learning each other but it just so happens I think that that that, that kind of two year three year writing period leading into you know making our first record yeah we were consuming a lot of american music and you know more retrogressive american music as well um you know not brian adams (laughs) (laughs) that's twice you've mentioned brian adams i I feel you're on the on the brink of a terrible confession Uh, (laughs) do you know do you know what the thing is as well in actual fact um because we were on a&m records and um brian adams was on a&M Records as well, and we had our A&R man, David Rose, was also Brian Adams' A&R when he was in the UK, a different A&R when he's uh, in the States, and he wrote us a, I, mean, I wish I still had it, but David Rose gave him a copy of our album, Expecting to Fly album, and he wrote us a, a, a nice letter actually saying how much he liked our album. David Rose had it on his wall in his little office at A&M Records. So, yeah, I can't be dissing Brian Adams. 
Well, you know, that's that's really interesting because just, I don't know, maybe a month or two ago, there was a bit of discussion online about, you know, cover versions. And mm-hmm. somebody pointed me in the direction of Rod Stewart covering On and On by the Long Pigs, um, which seems like the most unlikely thing in the world. But I would really like now for Brian Adams to do... The entire, you, you know, like sort of, uh, we're, we're not allowed to talk about the other American uh, singer who sounds like Brian Adams. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah but, you know, his his cover of Taylor Swift's album, that would be a great thing, right? Brian Adams to do Expecting to Fly. Well, you know, that would, uh, I wouldn't be opposed to that and neither would my accountant, I'm sure. <laughs> 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 so he, he took the time he probably he took more time out to listen to any of my music than I probably did his so I'm not going to be too disrespectful no I think I think that's fair enough well look I, I don't want to keep you for too much longer Adam your, your time is uh, too valuable to waste with me but one one final thing uh, yeah. not related to music hmm. um, so let's talk about Ad I Am <laughs> right okay so, so I know a couple of people who know you vaguely. I've spoken to Mark a couple of times. I interviewed him a couple of years ago for the, the site. Okay. And I've met him a couple of times and uh, another couple of people. And I've bumped into you backstage at the Barlands gig last year. Um, yeah. And what other people say about you and what my experience is, is that you are very, very nice. I know nice. I know nice is kind of damning with faint praise, right? I, I do understand that. Um, right. I, and yet, Ad I am, it can be quite cutting. It can be quite cutting. How how close is is Ad I am to the real Adam, or is Ad I am just a vehicle for that bit of Adam Devlin to kind of get things off his chest? Well, I'm going to be careful here with you know the whole third person thing. I'm going to start sounding like. <laughs> Uh, Steve Coogan or something <laughs> his characters but um, I don't know all, all, one of the things I really like about something like Twitter obviously it's the brevity it's just you have a little thought fart yeah. and bang it goes out um, but one of the things I kind of like about it, maybe less so now because I've been on there for a while and I guess most people that know me have sort of got me more pegged is it is something that sort of allows you to speak with a million different voices and i guess over time the people that know you people into well not even know you but just interact with you or follow you and, and start to be able to work out which one is actually you and which one is just this sort of caricature you know, a sort of monstrous caricature. <laughs> and, and so I, I think, um, I think, yeah, I think most, I think most of the, most of that's me, that's part of me, because you know, I'm a nice person. I think I'm a decent enough person, but. Um, well, you're all, you're always punching upwards. That's the interesting thing, though. Yeah. You know, yeah. you're never you're, you're never taking pot shots at people, you know, um, who who are undeserving targets, right. or I, or at ideas or philosophies that are undeserving targets. I think I have changed. I, 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 it popped up the other day. I think I've been on there for seven years or eight years or something. And I think o- over that period, 
I've changed a little bit. I think I've mellowed. I don't really because I mean when when I first got on Twitter, right, first I didn't know what I was doing, and then I quickly realised yeah you can you can send stuff to these people like all these people you can actually send it to them and I you know they might see it they might not and that was like that was a revelation to me (laughs) I can really tell I can tell these people what I think of them and I think the first two three four years on Twitter was just the wild west for me (laughs) and I also think um, there wasn't as many rules in place Mm. then well, it was a bit more like And I mean, I always tried not to be outright abusive to people, although I would say occasionally I'd misjudge that and probably was. It's, it's far more fun um, and interesting to sort of uh, take a pot shot at someone if you can do it um, in, a, in a more original way than just calling them a dickhead. I don't know, whatever. Yeah, you know, yeah that's fine. <laughs> Because anyone can kind of do that. It's far more fun if you... I mean, when, when I used to sort of go after people and try actively to make them notice me and eventually sort of block me, it would be... It's far more fun sort of death by a thousand cuts approach where you're just nudging away at someone. With nudge, 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 nudge. And eventually they, 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 eventually they sort of notice you. I get that guy again and... You know, and they either react, block you, or something. Um, occasionally, you're getting to sort of. So, yeah, that was really appealing to me. When when I sort of got to understand, that was so appealing to. Me. I can, oh man, I can, I can tell. You know, Piers Morgan, what I think of him, <laughs> and he's, every chance he won't notice, and he didn't for two years, and then one day he did. It's like, oh, amazing. <laughs> that a dreadful woman. Oh, I can't even remember her name now. Uh, oh, it'll come to me. But you know, but I did, it did come to a point where I started thinking, okay, you know, it's sort of, I've done this now, and I don't tend to do that now as much as I used to. And that also is down to the fact that you can't really, and especially with um, people that have got blue ticks and stuff. If you, you know, if you're abusive to them, you get your account spend it for 48 hours. This happened to me <laughs> 13 <laughs> times. <laughs> And oh, you get your notification. You just some silly little punishment they give you. So I've never, um, I've never seen it. I mean, you know, and I've had other accounts too. I use other little accounts, that's stupid accounts. Um, I don't think I've ever had one outright shut down. Uh, so yeah, so I think it's that. So um, I, yeah, I think what you, I think in answer to the question, going back to <laughs> which, which which ones do they all are a little bit. And well, okay, most of them are a little bit. There is every now and again when I say I speak with a lot of different voices, I will now and again speak with a voice that is not me at all. But but uh, I've been on here so long, and you know the people that know me on there know me well enough that they can pick it, and the people I interact with can pick it. They can pick when I'm saying what I think. Or when I'm saying what a twat would think. Or, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Whereas, whereas, whereas when, when you first appear, I mean, you've got to be a little bit careful because, you know, irony doesn't always translate to text. Mm. You know, you're not talking to someone, you're just typing something. And so until you've got that, you know, until you've earned that, you have to earn that. You have to earn that little position where 
where you're aware that 90% maybe of the people that are reading your stuff are well-versed in you enough to know which is you and which is you just being a dick to get a reaction or which is, you know. So, yeah. Well, see, I, I have this theory. You, you mentioned your, your accountant would be delighted if Brian Adams was to cover Expecting to Fly. Mm. I, I think a genuine money spinner, Adam. Mm-hmm. Would be just to you know the collected the collected tweets of Ad I Am, you know, and and just entire threads, you know, of of people from East Seventeen getting very cross with you. That would just be fantastic. I th- I think you should genuinely think about that. You think so? You think there's legs in that? I th- I well listen. I, I will buy one hundred copies. <laughs> I don't know what publishers would make of that. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, I'm very flattered that you would think that. Adam, Adam, J.K. Rowling managed to persuade a publisher to publish Harry Potter. And not just one Harry Potter, even after they'd read it and could see how badly written it was. They published dozens of the things. Surely there must be a market for the the, the collected poetic works of Ad I Am. There must yeah. be. Yeah, you're right. I should... I could be as big as J.K. Rowling. <laughs> I've got, I, I've got to be, I've never, never, I've never read a Harry Potter book. Can I ask one last thing? I, I asked this of Mark, yeah. like I said, a year and a half ago, two years ago. Okay. We, we were sitting in some tiny little dressing room in a tiny, tiny venue in Dunfermline. He was doing a night with uh, Chris Helm. It was around about the time that the Shed Seven had released Instant Pleasures. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so my question was. Could there be a time when the Blue Tones would ever record again? And I'd, I'd be interested to know whether or not your answer is that different from Mark's. Right, OK. Well, when, when, when did you ask that to Mark? A couple of years ago, you said? A couple of years ago, about 18 months ago, maybe, yeah. Right, OK. Well, obviously, I don't know what he said. Exactly. But, uh, me, but I would say absolutely there's a chance. I don't see why not. I don't see why you, we would say, no, never. And because I think even when we did, uh, you know, after New Athens decided to kind of knock it on the head, I think within ourselves, we probably knew that we were knocking it on the head for a bit. I don't think it was as calculated as some kind of breakup reunions. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, um, but I think what we kind of thought at that time, I think I think we thought as a recording band we were done, and that we it was it was all, in, all, in all likelihood it was inevitable that we would probably play together again. But in terms of recording together, we thought that was kind of it, and not for any sort of great artistic reason. It was it came to a very natural sort of conclusion we were all you know i mean you, you probably know that scott lives in japan yeah um, uh, mark had moved to kent it was only really me and Ernest living in london we were living on the opposite sides of london and we all had children and uh, even other jobs you know because we weren't making enough money not to live on and you know live in london um, yeah so you know, that had happened and it was it become, you know, even when we made a new Athens, it was very difficult to make that record just logistically because of where we were in our lives and other things we were doing and what we had going on. So that's kind of why we knocked it on the head when we did. Um, 
But I would say now, I would never rule rule it out that we would make another record. I'm not saying it'll happen, and you know, because we certainly have nothing written. Um, not 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 in a communal sense. We've all got yeah. stuff written, but you know that never stops. You know, coming up with little things and ideas and tunes and songs. And obviously, Mark's made what three solo records now, so he's net. You know, Mark never switches off; he's always writing. So, but in in the communal sense, there, there, you know, there's enough. There's there's not blue tone songs there. We would probably be writing from scratch, or at least taking what remnants of songs and ideas and things. But no, the answer to my question is, you know, never say never. You know, I think I think I'm not saying I think it's probable, but I'm saying. Yeah, why not? Uh, you know, I don't think it's beyond the realms of possibility. Adam, I'm genuinely really grateful that you've given me an hour of your time tonight. I'm, I'm, honestly, so thank you so much for that. Yeah, it's felt like longer. <laughs> <laughs>